Hello and welcome to the Offspring Magazine podcast. I'm Yuli and I will be hosting this episode. This is actually the first of a series of four episodes about black holes, which I have recorded for season four of this podcast. I started with a conversation with Laura Sperner, in which we introduced the basic concepts of black holes, space-time and general relativity. This should hopefully give you a good basis for the following episodes of the series, in which I dive into more details on observations of black holes. Towards the end of this episode, we already start talking about Laura's research concerning gravitational waves and what we can learn from them about black holes. So let's get started and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for joining this podcast today. Could you start by telling us a little bit about who you are and why you're here? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm Laura Sperma. I'm a, a postdoctoral researcher at the Max Planck for Gravitational Physics. That's in uh, uh, Golm, which is a suburb of Potsdam, a suburb of Berlin, <laughs> we say. Um, yeah. And uh, I guess I'm here to talk about black holes. Exactly. <laughs> so what is a black hole? <laughs> well, so uh, I think the defining feature of uh, a black hole is uh, the event horizon, uh, because uh, that's, uh, that delimits a region uh, from which we, we can have no information, no communication uh, whatsoever. Uh, that means we cannot get uh, uh, light signals or, I don't know, smoke signals uh, or anything like that uh, from behind that region. Okay, so you would say that the black hole is basically the inside of this event horizon? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think um, when in, in practice, uh, we, we think also about the outside um, of the black hole and the inside as being important. Or maybe the, the outside is the most important part, because as I said, the inside is so um, unseeable and unknowable that that doesn't matter in practice. Okay, but you must have some idea of what's going on inside, right? I mean, you must have some imagination of what is inside the black hole to be able to describe properly what is going on outside or not? Yeah, so the what we know about the outside, the inside, we is the mass and the rotation of, of that matter. And that's something that we, we can learn from the outside. What, what's the total mass and what's the, the rotation rate of, of this object? Yeah, but other details so uh, we, we cannot know. <laughs> <laughs> so because there's nothing coming out. Yeah. Okay. Wow, it's so hard to kind of imagine what is going on there. Um, so what is actually happening? Like, why is there no way of getting information from inside of the black hole? Why is there nothing coming out? Well, I guess we can we can introduce this concept of uh, space-time uh, to talk about this, which uh, sounds a bit um, abstract, uh, but it's just a way of putting together space and time in one concept uh, because we know that um, in in general relativity, our theory of gravity, uh, space and time get kind of mixed together, so it's useful to treat them as a as a single concept, as a single uh, idea. Um, and so what black holes are, are they are a feature of space-time where this, um, uh, you know, kind of sheet, you can imagine the space-time as a sheet, um, gets so deformed that, you know, nothing can come out uh, of it. Um, yeah, I think in, in our institute uh, for when um, outsiders come visit, like uh, kids or students, uh, we have um, this really a sheet that has been pulled at the center. 
uh, so that it looks kind of like a, a hole or a, a tunnel at, at the center. And uh, um, you can roll a ball on this sheet and you can see that, uh, you know, it's going to go down and, uh, you know, you can imagine that it couldn't come out uh, however, you know, fast you, you push it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nice to have this image now in in my head to imagine this very heavy object pushing or pulling down this sheet in the middle or having like, I imagine like a trampoline and then a heavy object pulling the middle so far down that once you've fallen into this hole, there's just no way of returning. Yeah, that it kind of forms an infinite uh, uh, tunnel through, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is also so crazy that you talk about something infinite because that is nothing like well-defined or something you can really grasp, but it is actually occurring in our universe. Yeah, so these are all, as I said, they're kind of mathematical concepts that are useful, but in practice, if it was, you know, infinite or just uh, very, very long, uh, you know, to, to us uh, in practice, it, it doesn't matter. So we actually don't know for sure that what we think are black holes are really black holes because we cannot wait an infinite time to see if anything comes out. Yeah, maybe this is a bit philosophical, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then these black holes really deform space and time. So everything that travels through space and time is affected. Indeed, yes. Okay, and this is also the reason why even light cannot come out. Because naively you would think that this entire thing is the concept of gravity and gravity acts on massive object, but then light doesn't have any mass. So it shouldn't be affected, but it still cannot get out. And this is because of this space-time curvature. Yeah, yeah. Like in, in the old theory of Newton, we, we thought that uh, mass was this defining feature for, for what gravitates, what what exerts gravity and what is affected by gravity but in general relativity einstein's theory instead uh, we know that uh, energy is also you know important in gravity uh, and it's really kind of the mass energy even pressure or energy flow that uh, that is important in gravity yeah so newton's idea of uh this apple falling down from the tree and all of that was actually only describing some phenomena, but not the actual concept of gravity. Yeah, I mean, we never see, say that a theory is wrong. It, it applied in some limit, but yeah, not, not in others. Yeah, and I guess in that when we were talking about space-time, indeed, um, light, uh, just like uh, a ball, uh, will just travel along space-time, along uh, you know the trajectory that is most uh, convenient on, on that sheet that we were talking about before. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about space-time and how it looks like in the vicinity of a black hole. So it gets deformed, but... What does that actually mean? Yeah, so I guess uh, I want to uh, demystify black holes a bit in the sense that, um, yeah, you, you were asking in the vicinity of black holes, but it, it matters how close you are. Because um, if you're far enough away, black holes are just like our sun. Uh, things can orbit around them. They can get close and then travel away again or, you know, get close and come back to us. Uh, so it's really when you get very close that black holes uh, make the difference. Um, so one, one feature that I think uh, was, uh, was shown also in that movie, what is it called? Interstellar, uh, which I think was a really cool depiction of what black holes do and what they are, right? Um, or was it a wormhole? I don't remember. 
<laughs> but uh, um, yes, yeah, so one one important feature of black holes is that when you get very close, time in particular uh, can tick differently. Uh, so if I was far away and I sent my alarm clock uh, down the black hole and then I looked with a telescope, a very good telescope, um, I could see that the ticking of my alarm clock is slowing down as it gets closer to the black hole. Yeah, there was also the scene in Interstellar when they were like uh, traveling to this planet that was very heavy and they were only spending like an hour there. But then when they came back to the spaceship, the guy was like 50 years older or whatever. And that is this entire concept of... Uh, time ticking slower yeah that's uh, i guess both things i was trying to say that yeah time is affected but it's not something peculiar of black holes alone uh, whatever is very massive is gonna is gonna do that yeah right so basically any mass can have this effect it's just a matter of how big this effect is and that depends on the mass of the object yeah and the, i guess the the special thing about black holes is that they're very compact they're the most compact thing we know so the, it's the ma most mass trapped in uh, in a single volume you know um for for a given mass they're very small and so we can get to, to a point where gravity is very intense uh, before hitting that surface uh, that is uh, in quotation marks uh, that is the event horizon Okay, mm -hmm. so how close are we talking, actually? You said very, very close, but I don't know. For example, if our sun was a black hole, how close would we actually have to get to notice notice these effects? Or, yeah, I don't know, any other kind of black hole. <laughs> yeah, so the, the sun is actually a unit uh, that we often use uh, in, in astrophysics, right? The the mass of the sun we we measure things in terms of the mass of the sun so i i know that number uh, by memory that if i replace the sun with a black hole of the same mass then the radius of that black hole would be 1.5 kilometers so the diameter say would be three kilometers so that's very very small <laughs> Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, that's very, very small. That's like the size of a small town or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, even if you're not very fit, I think you can run that uh, in, <laughs> yeah, in 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so you, ha you would actually have to get to close enough to a distance of these 1.5 kilometers to notice these effects. Yeah, I, I guess I can't give you like a, uh, an exact number, but yeah, around that scale, around maybe 10 kilometers. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Like, okay, so apart from it getting very cold and dark, um, if we actually replace the sun with a black hole for us on Earth, that wouldn't have any direct effect on like our rotation around the sun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as I was saying before, um, yeah, we would just keep orbiting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we would die for other reasons, not because we're falling into the sun. Yeah, definitely. It would be very cold and very dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I think you're definitely demystifying black holes when you say that. So I guess that also means that um, the center the black hole at the center of our, of our galaxy, um, we're not like falling into it. No, I, I actually, I asked my questions to this question to my colleagues uh, at lunch because it's funny, mm, people who are not uh, in research sometimes have questions that we never asked ourselves, you know, uh, about black holes or, or the the cosmos um yeah so i i wouldn't say we're falling into the the black hole at the center of the milky way we're definitely orbiting around the the galaxy but i think it's even the the dark matter uh, in the galaxy that is more important for for our motion uh, rather than the black hole at the center
<laughs> Not that we want to go uh, explain what dark matter is, but <laughs> that's another topic. <laughs> yeah, no, let's just uh, leave it at that. Uh, that would be a whole other podcast series to, um, to do about dark matter. Okay, so um, and black holes are in fact not giant vacuum cleaners that suck up everything around them. We have established that. Yeah. Okay, but then just thinking like very long term, I don't know, I just imagine like at some point our sun is going to die and you know something will change and we might move closer to the black hole and then at the end of the universe when everything is just dark i mean is that going to happen or and is it just going to be one gigantic black hole at the end of the universe i i don't know if i i know for sure the answer to this question but i would say no because um the we also have the accelerated expansion of the universe uh, so i think you know at some point in the future things would get further and further away from from one another and um yeah i don't think all black holes and all stars and all objects would accumulate into a single one a single black hole no <laughs> i haven't done the math but yeah i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean Yeah, uh, going into like the end of the universe, uh, I guess, is an entirely different field uh, to yeah study and research. So um, for now, let's uh, stick with what we have and what we can observe now. <laughs> okay, so we talked a little bit already about the black hole at the center of our galaxy, of the Milky Way. Um, so do we have any idea of um, how this was formed and how it happened, that it is there and everything around it is, um, yeah, just spinning around. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, this is a still an open field of research, how these, these uh, very heavy black holes uh, formed, especially knowing that, uh, you know, our universe is kind of young, um, is, you know, what is it, 15 billion years, uh, more or less. Um, and we formed a billion solar mass uh, black holes in that time. Um, so it, I, I can give you some some sketch of how it happened, but we don't know the, the details for sure yet. Um, so in general, we think that black holes form from the collapse of an old star that is uh, sufficiently massive for this collapse to happen, right? So for the sun, this would not be the case. The, the ultimate fate of the sun is not a black hole. Uh, but for heavier stars, bigger stars, then, then this would be the case. At some point, uh, the, the pressure at the center, you know, those um, nuclear reactions uh, would die off and the, 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 the star could do nothing else uh, than collapse onto, you know, because of the gravity of, of all this material. Uh, and at some point, uh, this thing becomes so compact that uh, it's a black hole. Uh, but that only explains why small black holes exist, while the one in the center of the Milky Way is much bigger, much heavier. Um, so to explain that, we think that that an initial small black hole uh, started eating up material around it, especially in, at the beginning of the universe, there's a lot of material still that hasn't formed stars, so they add a lot uh, Uh, to eat and and as they eat their mass grows and also their size the size of the event horizon um actually we don't think that's the only way uh, the only kind of path uh, for black holes to grow because that would be kind of too slow at some point you eat everything that is in your uh, immediate vicinities and you don't have nothing else to eat, right? <laughs> uh, black holes don't, don't move <laughs> to look for food. Um, so we think that black holes also encountered other black holes and merged with them to become bigger. Okay, um, so let's dial 
back a little bit because uh, before you said that black holes actually do not suck up everything around them, but now you said they did in the past. So maybe we should try to put that into a bit more of a context. Yeah, so they don't suck everything, but uh, some. If uh, yeah, if, if something is uh, in their trajectory, you know, uh, uh, something, especially uh, when there's a lot of material uh, that is orbiting around the black hole, um, it's going faster and faster, and so there's uh, you know friction and other ways in which uh, um, material loses energy and kind of falls closer and closer to the black hole. So that's how it happens. So the, we call them accretion disks. Um, these formations of material that gets heat, heated up, uh, you know, the temperature grows because of this friction, this rotation around the black hole, and they slowly go down. <laughs> okay, so it's not like stars falling into it, but more like um, uh, dust or gas. Mm -hmm. Well, it can also be stars, but it's mostly, uh, yeah, more gas, star, uh, dust, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, and then if this is very dense, you have all this friction, and then, yeah, that makes sense that you lose energy because of that, and you cannot hold your stable orbit around the black hole. Exactly, yeah. If you were just uh, isolated in your orbit, uh, there would be no reason to, to change it. But if you're losing energy through some other process, then you fall into a smaller orbit and eventually you fall in. Okay, so for example, also if the Earth was um, kind of hitting something, like if we were unlucky and some giant object uh, was hitting us, we could also uh, yeah, lose energy and move uh, closer to the sun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, okay. So everything makes sense again. Okay, and then these black holes are basically eating up everything around them until they have nothing left around them. Yeah. And they basically create this vacuum around them by themselves, by eating everything. Yeah, yeah. So they go kind of in eating cycles where they're very active. And we know because when they're eating a lot of stuff, uh, there's also a lot of light coming out because of these friction processes, because everything is very hot. Um, and then when they're done, they become a bit quiet and dark again. And then maybe some something else happens and this uh, starts all over again. Okay. And the black hole at the center of our galaxy, is it eating something at the moment or is it quiet? It is eating something, but not a lot, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's in, in a quiet phase, even though it's still eating stuff and emitting, uh, and, and this stuff is emitting a lot of light. Yeah. Okay, um, so you mentioned that now I don't remember the number, but that there are a lot of black holes in the universe. So how many are there? Yeah, I I, I tried to count them. Uh, so I think there's like a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. Maybe you also know this number. I don't know. S something like that. And we think there's maybe one big black hole in each of these galaxies. So that's already 100 billion, a lot. And then uh, we also mentioned that, uh, you know, black holes are formed by stars. And if you imagine how many stars are in a galaxy and that just, a, you know, some fraction of them form a black hole, that's an extra, a lot of black holes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's just say a number with many, many zeros that we probably can't really imagine. Definitely, yeah. It, it's not really useful if I tell you there's 15 or 17 zeros. <laughs> I don't think it matters. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then we have these very, very massive black holes and the ones that are formed by stars. So you mentioned that you measure them in terms of the masses of the sun. So how big is this mass difference that we are talking about here? 
Yeah, so the the small ones are around uh, I don't know between ten and fifty times uh, the sun in masses, and the big ones are up to billion times the the mass of the sun. Uh, could be million billion, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's a very very big difference. Um, so now. It also um, makes sense why it is so hard to understand how to get from like 10 times the mass of our sun to a billion times the mass of our sun. Exactly. Yeah, it's many orders of magnitude. Yeah. Yeah, if you want, I can give you also a, a sense of how fast they can grow. Um, yeah, I, I, I looked this up, but I think we don't know for sure, but I think we think there's a limit of um, growing uh, three times in mass in 50 million years. So they can triple their mass in every 50 million years. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that sounds big or small. <laughs> it's, it's when you have millions of years. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's always like, well, I guess you have to put it into some context of um, like how old is our galaxy or how old is our universe? Yeah, so the universe is say 10 billion years. So there is time to grow, but it's kind of tight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I remember that at the beginning you mentioned that about the inside of a black hole we know the mass, but also its rotation. Mm -hmm. So how can they rotate or how can you even tell that they are rotating? Because for me now in my head, a black hole is just this uh, sinkhole in the center of a trampoline. So I cannot imagine how it can actually rotate. <laughs> yeah. So the reason why they rotate is because usually the whatever form them was rotating before like the sun rotates and these big stars would be rotating around some axis and so even after the collapse kind of the space time is still uh, rotating with uh, with its uh, source of gravity um yeah and actually even as they eat uh, after forming um you know the the stuff that they eat can carry we say angular momentum and so their rotation can actually grow in time they can spin up um rotate faster and faster um how do we tell though because uh, we we are dealing with uh, just this uh, space time object we cannot just look at the surface and see you know a spot uh, and and follow it and see that it's rotating around right as we could do maybe with the sun or the earth <laughs> uh, fr from outside um well we see the effect of this rotation on the space time around the black hole um, so, for example, the, the size of the event horizon can depend on, uh, on the rotation and so how close uh, things can get before being uh, swallowed uh, depends on the rotation. Um, yeah, and there's another effect which is called, uh, I think, frame dragging. When you're very close to a black hole that is rotating, you cannot help but rotate with it. Yeah. So there's a, a region where you have to rotate with the black hole. If you're outside, you can rotate as much or as little as you want. But if you're inside this region, very close to the black hole, you have to rotate with it in the same direction. So, I mean, of course, it's hard to measure this rotation because you need to look very close to the black hole. So we, we, we have some measurements, but they're not always very good. <laughs> Okay, so this is something that is actually difficult to observe and probably you have to make some assumptions. Exactly, it's kind of, we, we say model dependent, uh, sometimes uh, uh, different ways of measuring the spin of the black hole, this rotation, uh, give you different answers. <laughs> okay, so then when you do 
this this modeling so you have some from your theory from general relativity you have some idea of okay if this black hole has this kind of mass it should affect space time in a certain way mm -hmm. and then but then the spin is some unknown parameter and then depending on what you change okay you yeah get different answers mm -hmm. indeed <laughs> Okay. Um, wow. I think we've uh, covered quite a lot of ground in a relatively short amount of time. So um, let me think back. I think we kind of went pretty quickly through the concept of relativity in general. Maybe we could try to spend some time on explaining relativity, maybe even starting first with special relativity and then going to how Einstein made the connection to general relativity. Could we try? Okay. So this whole idea of general relativity really started from the, 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 the more basic idea of special relativity, right? Um, by, again, Einstein, but just uh, 10 years earlier, uh, which if you think about it is a crazy Uh, timeline for such discoveries. Um, so in already in special relativity, um, Einstein started thinking about, uh, you know, space and time and whether um, they were these uh, kind of abstract and uh, immutable concepts or um, they could actually depend on where you measured them or how you measured them. So in particular, he realized that um, if you're measuring uh, space and time uh, but are on a different reference frame, then you're measuring something different. And by reference frame, uh, you mean we mean you know where you are as an observer and also at what speed you're going, uh, right? And then speed becomes very important in in special relativity, in the sense that. Uh, um, if you as an observer are, uh, you know, traveling uh, at some speed uh, compared to another observer, then the space and time you measure are, are different. And uh, yeah. Okay. So, and then he already did these, I mean, he, he had these simple kind of images in his mind of, you know, someone traveling on a train and someone looking from outside or someone being in an elevator someone looking from outside yeah this uh, i guess it's uh, the the german word is used gedanken <laughs> experiment yeah exactly yeah yeah because you couldn't actually experiment with this in the lab because you need speeds that are really fast and hard to to reach uh, to to actually get these effects that are otherwise very subtle uh, very small Uh, so he was imagining uh, these two observers being one uh, on the train platform, one on the train going at some speed and, uh, you know, um, having two clocks and then maybe comparing their clocks at the, at the end of the journey and seeing something different on them. Which, I mean, this definitely blows my mind that Einstein came up with this. I think it like it speaks to his genius that he actually had these thoughts. Like nowadays, yeah, we can reproduce them, but to actually come up with it and understand that time is not just this universal concept that is the same for everybody, but it literally depends on if you're riding a train or not. I think that's just so remarkable. Yeah, I mean, how did, do you look at your equations and see that result and not think, oh, I must be wrong, <laughs> you know? Because it's something that we never experience. So I think it's normal that even after 100 years, they're very hard to grasp these concepts because we never have direct experience of it. Exactly. Like when we move around in our daily lives, it's, it's not relative. It's all the same. Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. Although it, it is important uh, for things we use every day, like the GPS, right? Uh, you need these signals to be so so precise, so accurate uh, um, that you need to take into account uh, effects in special and general relativity. Yeah, and that's also that's always the example I put forward when like someone asks me if the basic research that I do has any like practical purpose. I always say, well, Einstein came up with special relativity and he just thought he had a crazy idea. And now you wouldn't be able to use Google Maps without him. So it is definitely worth it to just be curious and yeah, ask questions and do basic research without knowing where it's going. Yeah, although I still worry that yeah, my research on black holes uh, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't serve any purpose. <laughs> well, you never know. Who knows yeah, what yeah. will happen in 100 years? Maybe gravitational waves will suddenly play an important role in our daily lives. <laughs> well, definitely gravitational waves uh, detectors uh, use technology that is really cutting edge and sometimes they invent a technology that then gets used in in industry for other purposes yeah um okay yeah and then einstein actually had this i don't know next the idea that uh, massive objects deform space time yeah the, the the thought process was that he was studying acceleration in special relativity and we know that uh, you know acceleration is tied to gravity in a very special way because already for newton uh, the kind of um the mass on the left hand side of uh, the newtonian equations was the same as the gravitational mass so there was the, the inertial mass we say and the gravitational mass were the same and so that that already tells you that you know there's some what we call the equivalence principle that you know thinking of acceleration and thinking of gravity are really the same thing and so he could tie together these uh, initial um you know, principles that only pertain to motion uh, in general without gravity to then what gravity does. Okay, and uh, this is then how you get to uh, time is ticking slower when you have a very massive object somewhere in the universe. Yes, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but only if you look from the outside, because I imagine if you yourself were to travel like inside the black hole or close to the black hole, you wouldn't notice this, right? No, no, you you would be you, if you were ne just next to your alarm clock falling into the black hole, uh, then you would you wouldn't notice anything different. The alarm would uh, to you tick normally. Uh, I mean. I guess uh, compared to your internal clock, uh, your, I don't know, circadian rhythm. Okay, so then I assume that when you study black holes, because you observe them from Earth, which is a different reference frame than the black hole that you're observing, then when you measure um, light or gravitational waves from this black hole, you have to take this into account. Yeah, definitely. I um, yeah, I came across this in in my research uh, some time ago. Um, that yeah, there's so many little effects that you need to take into account uh, along the way. The fact that maybe the black hole is moving and the Earth is moving around the sun, and then the sun is moving around the galaxy, and these are all little speeds or gravitational effects that you need to sum up uh, to get the right answer. So then it's really about precision calculations to get all of this right in order to properly reconstruct a model, the black hole that you want to observe or model. Yeah, yeah, especially when you're dealing with tiny effects, uh, then you need to worry about all this. I, I, I find it all amazing myself that, I mean, how do people not forget one of these effects and get it wrong? <laughs> but we get it right, usually. 
<laughs> well, it's smart people working on this and many, so probably in the end it's fine. Yeah, I think that's the key. <laughs> so yeah, we actually covered a lot about black holes and hopefully demystified them for our audience. So I would say we start to talk a little bit about the research that you actually do on a daily basis, because to me, it sounds very interesting. Ah, thank you. Sure. Sure, we can do that. So you work with gravitational waves. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, although my, during my PhD, my doctoral degree, I, I started working more on, uh, by working more in cosmology, like the, the evolution of the universe and especially the beginning of the universe. Uh, but then gravitational waves uh, were detected for the first time and uh, this research field was really blooming and so it was so exciting and so I was attracted and kind of switched the field a bit. So then let's talk a little, little bit about gravitational waves and why they're so exciting and I guess we should start by explaining what they actually are. Yeah, so um, I guess we can go back to space-time and that uh, sheet uh, we talked about. Um, so we said that black holes are like pulling on this sheet and creating kind of a, a, a tunnel, a funnel uh, in, in the center. Well, gravitational waves are instead tiny ripples in this sheet, uh, uh, tiny perturbations or oscillations in this sheet. Um, and they travel through space, uh, in particular for, for our interests, uh, they travel from uh, their source uh, uh, to us so that we can detect them. And what they do, um, they change the distance between uh, objects, the relative distance between objects as they come through. Um, and this is how we detect them. Um, it's, of course, a very, very tiny effect that, again, uh, we cannot experience ourselves, but we need very accurate detectors uh, to do it. Okay, so one single black hole cannot create these gravitational waves? No. Uh, for gravitational waves, you need uh, some complicated motion that um, to cause them. You cannot have just uh, something spherical, like a black hole rotating wouldn't be enough. You need to have um, some asymmetry in the system. Uh, so in, in practice, uh, the, the typical source uh, that we've been detecting is a binary of two black holes. So, so two black holes that are orbiting each other and eventually merging into one. Because you can imagine that these two black holes are forming this very asymmetric perturbation in the space-time uh, compared to a single black hole just sitting there. Right, because, yeah, a single black hole is just um, sitting at the center of this trampoline, pulling everything down. But then if you add a second one it and move it around, it will create this chaotic perturbations. Yeah, yeah, the single black hole does form a gravitational field that does deform the space-time, but in kind of a constant, uniform way, which we don't call a gravitational wave. Okay, so in order to get this wave, you need some sort of non-constant, non-uniform perturbation. Yeah, yeah. And you get that when two black holes merge. Indeed, when, even when they are just orbiting around each other. Uh, but of course, the merger is the time when uh, their gravitational pull on each other is the strongest, and so when they form the biggest uh, perturbation in sp space-time. I want to go back a bit, because earlier we said that other objects orbit, orbit stably around black holes. So... How does it even come to this point where these two black holes merge and meet? And why don't they just 
orbit stably around each other and never meet? Yeah, that, that's a very uh, interesting, important question. Um, we, yeah, sometimes we don't even know <laughs> uh, in the sense that, uh, yeah, it's a long journey from the two initial stars, uh, say, uh, that have to collapse, form two black holes, and then get close to each other, so close that they eventually merge, right? That's a, a long way to go. Uh, because if you imagine, you know, a star could be as far as we are from the sun, um, and we need to get to kilometer, orders of kilometer distance uh, uh, between the two black holes, uh, right? So, so that's a long journey. The way it happens is that you need to have some mechanism, as we said, to take away energy, angular momentum from the system so that it falls into a smaller and smaller orbit. So there's many ways in, in which we can have this. Um, we can have these explosions, uh, these supernova explosions that can carry away some, some energy, or we can have uh, some transfer of matter or gas from one star to the other that also kind of redistributes energy and angular momentum in the system. And then eventually, actually, gravitational waves are, are going to do the job for us because they carry away energy and angular momentum from the system and cause the orbit to shrink. So it's a kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, if you have gravitational waves, eventually uh, they're going to merge and produce even more <laughs> gravitational waves. So gravitational waves actually carry away energy from these black holes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess you, you're wondering why is this not happening, you know, to every star in, in the Milky Way? Um, uh, yeah, or to, to our sun uh, in, in the Milky Way compared to the black hole at the center. The, the problem is that the further away you are, the slower this process is. So it is happening in some sense, but it's so, so tiny. These gravitational waves are so tiny and weak, they're not carrying away much. Okay, so just compared to all the other ways there are to lose energy, gravitational waves just don't play a big role. Yeah, so even in, in that scenario I was talking about with two stars that form black holes and eventually merge, and when they're far apart, these two stars, you need some other mechanism to get them closer. And then at some point, uh, gravitational waves become the dominant uh, actor <laughs> in play. Yeah, I still want to get into that because I think it's like it's easier to imagine that uh, yeah, a star exploding or even just the sun that is shining light that that is carrying away energy or like some particles carry away energy from an object but with gravitational waves it's more difficult to grasp or understand how this is happening yeah i mean i guess it, it, it can be intuitive that if you are creating these ripples you're putting some energy into into these right? You, you cannot create these ripples without losing something in return. Yeah, right. Okay. So um, the black holes are actually doing some work to create these ripples in space-time and this is where the energy is going. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. <laughs> okay. And then you study these signals that you get from the gravitational waves to actually understand or learn something about what happened there. Yeah, so our group, uh, we have a very big group uh, here uh, in, in Potsdam. Um, we, we don't do the experimental part. Someone else is uh, designing these experiments and making them work. Uh, what we get is the data. So the, these, um, uh, just the, the, the data from these uh, test uh, masses that are getting uh, you know, moved around by the passage of the gravitational wave. 
um, yeah, and from that, uh, uh, just these oscillations back and forth uh, of these masses, we, we want to understand what, what caused uh, the gravitational waves, uh, what were the black holes involved, uh, how, how big were they, were they rotating, where were they, and so on. So how do you do that? <laughs> um, well, we need models. So we need to solve uh, Einstein's equations uh, of general relativity, um, imagining some system uh, with two black holes, uh, some separation, uh, some masses, uh, some rotation, some inclination, and, and all these details. And then we compare uh, these models. We produce a lot of models with different parameters, uh, different details. And then we compare them with uh, what we see in the detectors. And uh, the model that fits best is going to be uh, the, our best bet of what happened. But really, in the end, we get you know, a bunch of models that are compatible with, uh, with that motion. Um, and so we, we can say the masses be, were between 10 and 15 solar masses and, and so on. Yeah, the, so these, uh, these signals, uh, these oscillations uh, caused by gravitational waves uh, from these binary black holes have a very uh, recognizable pattern. So they, they oscillate, they oscillate faster and faster up to a maximum, and then uh, they decay again. So sometimes you can even see it by eye that that's a, a binary black hole that has merged. Um, but otherwise, it's going to be hidden in also some instrumental noise and you need some more work to, to figure it out. Okay, and then so in the signal that so you mentioned that it's um, first oscillate and then gets faster and faster and then it dies down. So I guess from these changes in the frequencies, you get the information um, of uh, yeah, how the masses of the black holes and how far away and so on. Indeed, exactly. Yeah, eventually it's that. But we need very detailed models of how exactly is the, the frequency evolving, uh, very precise. And it, it takes a lot of work uh, also from our computers. We have a lot of computers in the basement <laughs> that we to predict this yeah <laughs> yeah that's what i was going to ask uh, you mentioned that you're doing these detailed um, computations i assume that you're not doing them on a blackboard no i mean there are some steps on the blackboard to to figure out uh, uh, what uh, yeah what the equations are but maybe then you need to solve them uh, with a with a computer yeah <laughs> yeah so then there's also a lot of computational science and like computational research going into understanding these signals exactly um actually the um, yeah and some it takes time for each of these parameters and then you need to do it uh, many times and sometimes it takes weeks uh, to get the answer for a single uh, detection of single event <laughs> There's actually people in my group working on speeding this up because uh, we think that uh, in the near future, we're going to see one event per day, um, maybe next year, one event per day. And then if it takes weeks for every event, <laughs> we will never be done. <laughs> okay. So these gravitational waves change space-time and they travel through the universe towards Earth. So can they be disturbed by anything that is on the way. So I imagine a black hole merging, I don't know, in a galaxy that is very, very far away from us. And there might be a thousand galaxies in between. Like how do they just travel through that or do they get disturbed on the way? So mostly they don't get disturbed because the gravitational interaction is very weak and the, the waves themselves are very weak, and so they, they just travel th through. Uh, and that's actually a good thing in some ways, uh, because it means that uh, they can 
come from far away and they don't get um, distorted along the way. We can get a clean uh, signal and um, we don't lose any signals because there was something in the way. For example, when we look at light in the Milky Way, we cannot see uh, for example, the other side of the Milky Way very clearly because there's a lot of stuff in between and, and got, light gets lost, right? And for gravitational waves, so this doesn't happen so much. Um, they do get disturbed a tiny bit by the way just the universe is, is distributed. So we can learn a bit about the, the overall shape and evolution of the universe from gravitational waves. Uh, but so far, this information has not been very detailed. Yeah, we hope to improve this in the future. So they, they don't, gravitational waves don't get disturbed on the way when they travel to us, but do the surroundings of black holes when they merge or where they merge, do they play a role in how the signal is going to look like? Yeah, I guess that's uh, one of my main uh, research interests, uh, yes. Um, uh, yeah, I like to... Um, think about the environment of black holes and how this environment might uh, of black hole binaries and how this environment might affect them. Um, unfortunately, the in the signals we we see right now, uh, this the effect on the environment is is not present or it's too weak uh, to be seen. Uh, but I hope in the future when we will have this um, other detectors, uh, one is called LISA. Uh, it's going to be a detector in space. And I hope in that case, uh, uh, the effect of the environment uh, will, will be <laughs> detectable. Um, yeah, so the, what environment, what, what kind of effect am I talking about? Um, yeah, the idea is just that these black holes uh, might be sitting uh, in, in the middle of a lot of gas or might have other stars or other black holes around them. And so uh, they're not just orbiting around each other peacefully, but uh, they're a little disturbed by the presence of gas or the presence of these, uh, these other objects. And yeah, that's what I try to model and try to see if these future detectors could, could see this. Okay, so then this effect will actually be on the gravitational waves that they produce while they are still orbiting around each other, not the gravitational waves of the actual merger. Exactly. Yeah. The, the yeah in the we call it in spiral. Uh, this part uh, before the merger. Yeah, it will be at that point because yeah we we mentioned earlier that uh, gravitational waves are not the dominant actor uh, in, in the orbit when they're a little further apart. So that's what I'm counting on, that uh, when they're a little further apart, the presence of matter around them could be a little more important and disturb their orbit. Okay, but this, so this in-spiral signal is something that we cannot see yet with the detectors that we have, but we will be able to see in the future. Yeah, we see the very end of the spiral, then the merger, and then this die-off, which we call the ring down. Yeah, um, but yeah, but we see they're very short. I think they're like millisecond uh, long. The the signals we see, and and so yeah, we we cannot learn everything <laughs> from them. Yeah, because you mentioned that it's such a long process until they finally merge, like until they get to the point it takes years and years and years and years so then to just look at the last millisecond yeah exactly it's crazy they, they took millions of years uh, to get there and then we see a millisecond of it <laughs> yeah and then still we can learn so much just from this millisecond which is also quite impressive i think no yeah definitely we yeah we saw things we had never seen before uh, with these gravitational waves already, yeah. Okay, so then by studying this in spiral, we could actually learn um, the 
more about the the matter around the black holes and their surroundings um could we actually also learn more about their past and how they were actually formed in the first place yeah i think that's that's why i'm excited about the, about this idea because um um, yeah, when we see only the the final millisecond, uh, we we can see what type of black holes we have and how they're rotating, and from that we can try to guess how they formed and what was their history and where are they. Uh, but um, it's very complicated because we have so many different models of how they could form. And uh, we know so little about uh, the evolution of stars, especially these big explosions they have. They're so complicated uh, that, yeah, we're realizing that just that information at the very end, cannot, it's sometimes not enough uh, to reconstruct uh, their history. Uh, so, yeah, I've been thinking that if we could tell exactly where these black holes are and what surrounds them, Maybe that surrounding played a role in their formation, in their history. And so we could tie these two things together, you know, directly, not trying to guess. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, it's also cool that you mentioned what you mentioned, that you, we could do this for objects that are potentially very, very far away. Because, I mean, I imagine that if something like this is happening basically next door, we could just point a telescope um, at it. There must be some light coming to us um, from that object and then we, we could study it. But with the gravitational waves, we can, we can observe objects that are further away or, or are obscured by something that is in the way. And then potentially you have a lot more to go on. Yeah, also, well, if uh, if we're talking of stars and or stars with a black hole in, in orbit, uh, yeah, we can use telescopes, but maybe unfortunately only in our galaxy, the ones that are closer together. Uh, but when we talk about binary black holes where there's no stars, there's no, if, yeah, there's no light. <laughs> so even if they were in our galaxy, we couldn't see them with other telescopes. Yeah, it's so cool how with the detection of gravitational waves, this entire new window opened to study the universe. And it was only six years ago, right? Maybe seven. It was um, 14th of September 2015, I think. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know the date by heart. Yeah, because it's the name of the first uh, black hole binary. We yeah we labeled I, I guess also in other uh, astronomy uh, fields. Uh, uh, yeah, we labeled them with the date, so we all remember. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's incredible if you think about that. Just seven years ago, you detected the very first signal, and now you're thinking about how we can study all of these different details and different aspects on top of just detecting signals. Yeah, it's true. We're already thinking, oh, we have too many <laughs> events. Uh, how can we deal with that? Uh, or like what's uh, the next next um, uh, telescope, like the next uh, observatory going to be? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually spend most of my time, half of my time, let's say, thinking about the next observatory in, uh, in 2036. <laughs> We've already moved on <laughs> to the next problem. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's very cool if you think about that. Einstein postulated all of this or came up with the theory a hundred years ago, and then it took a hundred years to actually detect the gravitational waves. And now, who knows what we are going to learn in the next hundred years? It's very fascinating and you know exciting to think about that. I think. Yeah, the um, yeah, I was reading back yesterday that when um, Einstein worked out gravitational waves in his theory, he made some mistakes and he thought this must be wrong, uh, there shouldn't be any gravitational waves. Um, and, and that was more than 100 years ago, and there had to be so many uh, people thinking about these models and coming up with 
genius ideas along the way, uh, both on the experimental side and on the theory side uh, to, to make this possible. Um, yeah, I think that's a great point to stop. There's a bright future ahead. <laughs> um, is there anything that you would like to say or that you think we didn't cover? No, I, I, it was fun to be on a podcast because um, I, I listen to them a lot, actually, in, in my daily life. I find it very, I don't know, soothing and it helps me go through maybe tasks that I, I don't feel like doing, you know, I don't know, washing the dishes. Uh, so it's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe someone is washing the dishes right now while listening to this podcast and learning about black holes. Well, okay, thank you so much for joining us. That's it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Next week, part two of the Black Hole series will be released in which you will be able to learn even more about gravitational waves and how they can be observed. If you like our podcasts, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. Offspring Magazine, the podcast, is brought to you by the Max Planck PhD Net and the Science Communication Working Group known as the Offspring Magazine. The intro-outro music is composed by Srinath Rankumar and the pre-intro jingle is composed by Gustavo Corinzo. For any feedback, comments or suggestions, please feel free to write us at offspring.podcast at phdnet.mpg.de. Until next week, stay safe, stay healthy. Bye-bye.